Chebby Sabah, DJ Sandina, DJ Lucha Grande, and local poets, plus a silent auction for art and weekend getaways. For more information, please give us a call at 415-271-0576. And you are listening to KPFA in Berkeley, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Please stay tuned for Stone's Throw on Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Uh, today is April the 22nd, 2008. Not much April out there today. Looks like rain coming. <laughs> Spring. Spring will be a little late this year. Most of us, well, many of us, some of us, are in our darker moods. I... Tried to cheer up. I got a, I got a new biography of Beatrix Potter. I think I'll save that for a marathon. It's called A Life in Nature. You remember Beatrix Potter, that dear woman who wrote all the Peter Rabbit books, a true conservationist. She's, she's what it's all about. You know, if women ruled the world, they would just buy more farms and give them to the National Trust in the Lake District in England and everything would be beautiful. And, you know, we would have all the Victorian virtues, never mind. Uh, I think I will save Beatrix Potter for uh, a fundraiser marathon. I'll get copies of the new biography of that dear sweet woman. Her book, the Peter Rabbit book, was published first in 1902. That's the year my parents were both born. Uh, my God, uh, it's amazing. Centuries just flying by. Uh, <laughs> I went all the way back two and a half millennium this past weekend. I went to see Trojan women back to ancient Greece and see if they've got the answers, you know keep looking for the answer. I don't think there is one. A Trojan women asks a few good questions, you know, like, what happens to the spoils of war? What happens to the women when the war is over? Not a very exciting subject, you know. Euripides, the great Greek playwright, he was, uh, well, some people consider him the first feminist playwright. I think he was... Uh, uh, most people would want to call him a humanist, you know, because they're so afraid that feminism is a limiting 
term. Uh, now, the play at the Aurora Theater here in Berkeley is not the one by Euripides. It's inspired by Euripides. It's by Ellen McLaughlin. And I liked it. thought it was interesting. I'm having trouble, though. Actually, uh, I was a little upset because, of course... Euripides, like all the other ancient Greek playwrights, did not allow violence to take place on stage. If there was violence in the story, it happens off stage, you know, and then they carry in the guy with his eyes punched out or whatever it is, you know. But they don't show it on stage. In this play, Ellen McLaughlin saw fit to have the chorus of women batter, beat up, or torture uh, Helen of Troy, mostly off stage, but we do see her kicked around and smacked, well, kicked in the stomach and that kind of thing. We see violence on stage, then they drag her off stage, and then she comes back on stage much bloodied. And uh, I wasn't sure there's nothing in Euripides or any of the other plays about the women of Troy punishing or battering Helen. I just... I guess... I guess that the modern woman playwright was trying to say something else. Maybe she was saying that uh, we are our own worst enemy, that it is usually women. (laughs) finally do most of the punishing. Uh, In Trojan women, you know, you have Cassandra, the the daughter of Troy, the daughter of Hecuba and Priam, the king and queen. She goes mad. She runs around in her wedding dress because she's going to be married, in quotes, to Agamemnon, the king of the Greeks, and go back to Greece and be murdered by uh, Agamemnon's wife, Clytemnestra. You've heard about her. Uh, Agamemnon's been gone for ten years, and in order to set sail from Greece, he had to sacrifice his daughter, Iphigenia, the child of uh, Clytemnestra. So Clytemnestra is, she feels, within her rights to murder him when he comes home from Troy, especially since he has this Cassandra on his arm. And Cassandra, of course, is cursed because, well, you know, Apollo gave her the gift of prophecy, but then when she spurned him, Apollo the god, he uh, he cursed her by having uh, <laughs> having her prophecies be ignored. Nobody believed her. It's like all of us, you know, running around screaming, look out, look out, you know. The the, uh, planet's melting. Nobody listens. (laughs) Anyway, check out Euripides sometime. Uh, George Bernard Shaw used to carry his Euripides around with him. Uh, Let's see. He's commonly thought to have been born 480 years before the Common Era. About two and a half millennia ago. That was the... Oh, yes, the the marvelous time in history, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, all those great guys. It was also, you know, the Buddha, the Socrates, and all of those good people. Uh, anyway, he was the youngest of the great Greek playwrights, and uh, 
he didn't do too well at first, you know. He won the prize, that fancy theater competition, only five times. He is reputed to have written ninety plays, only of eighteen of which remain. My favorites, uh, besides the Trojan women, are Electra and the one about Orestes, the son of Clytemnestra. Yes, Orestes and Electra are the children of Agamemnon. Uh, and let's see, Medea, the suppliant women, the Bacchae, Alcestes, a whole bunch of terrific plays. Uh, <laughs> I did Trojan women in college. I just loved it. I did Andromache the wife of Hector and the mother of the heir to the throne, Astyanax. They murder him. He's supposed to be a little five-year-old boy, but most productions use a baby. This, this production at the Aurora also uses a baby. That is so tricky. You bring in a baby dead on a shield, and it doesn't quite work. It's really hard. Uh, they did a good job. I, I missed some of the speeches by Euripides, the Greek soldier, uh, the one who has to murder the child and bring the child back to its mother. Uh, in Euripides, he has long speeches in which he explains the rationale of the Greeks, the reasons why you have to kill the heirs, you know. Because if you don't, there uh, will undoubtedly be revenge. Children grow up to avenge their parents. So if you want to win a war or a blood feud... You've got to kill everyone. Now, we know today that the way this is done, what is that? Uh, it's the war on women's strange. Uh, yes, killing everything and everyone. You have to do soul murder. Anyway, uh, check out Trojan Women because what they tried to do in this play... Uh, is something new, and I'm not quite sure what it is. Maybe you can figure it out. Maybe you can tell me. Uh, uh, once again, the old play was basically uh, was based on an uh, incident. The island of Melos, M-E-L-O-S, had recently been decimated or, uh, well, uh, uh, smashed by the Greeks, uh, Alcibiades and those folks. And they brought home all the women and children as slaves. So Euripides wrote a play about an ancient war. In his day, the Trojan War was ancient history. And he did this uh, to reprimand his society because they had done this terrible thing on the island of Milos. Uh, I don't know. I think of the repressed women of his time uh but their voices, you know, the playwrights were hearing their wives and mothers and sisters, uh, their lovers, all the women in the back room. So I think, in a way, the voices of the women surfaced in the male playwrights at this time with particular vehemence uh, because it was a period of great uh, militarism uh, then as now. Uh, Let's see. I'm looking here to see what happened to Euripides. Um, the um, the piece on the Trojan women in the in the blurb. Let's see from the theater. Oh, they just say that uh, you know his women are strong and his slaves are intelligent, right? <laughs> right. 
And his politics is above average. Okay, right. Uh, anyway, he was kicked out of uh, Athens. Um, mostly his rigid skepticism about religion was what got him in trouble. You know, like Socrates, he didn't believe in the gods. So he was uh, tried for impiety, and he had to flee to Macedonia. He lived there for a little while and died in 407 BCE before the Common Era. The king uh, was his patron. Uh, let's see. The nature of his death is disputed. One popular story is that he was, either accidentally or intentionally, torn apart by hunting dogs. Things were so dramatic in the old days. Anyway, Euripides is the one who wrote very personal, uh, emotional, psychological dramas, and uh, he showed the flawed, ordinary side of human beings rather than just, you know, the kings and stuff. Uh, anyway, after I got out of Trojan Women... That's pretty depressing. I went home and watched an episode of John Adams. I watched the last episode, which was full of the death of both John and Abigail Adams. Uh, the seven-hour series on HBO is, of course, all about the history of our American Revolution, but it's mostly about old age, disease, and death in the... 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, pretty grim. Uh, I think that the worst of it was the daughter, uh, Abigail and John, had one daughter and three sons. Uh, John Quincy was the sixth president of the United States, Adams the second. Uh, there was uh, one daughter, and uh, she's shown... It's a very sad scene. She has a mastectomy, and uh, in those days, the surgery was performed at home. Take the children out for a long walk, right? And the doctor puts a stick wrapped in a rag in her mouth, and she bites down on it. It seemed, let's see, he gave her some laudanum. That was about all they had. And the shot that stays with me, the filmmakers were particularly cruel. They show the the woman's little feet in little white socks. Uh, she's like a child with her little toes there. And anyway, uh, it doesn't work, and she eventually dies of breast cancer. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I must be a glutton for punishment, as my son said, yes, why do you watch these things? Anyway, um, if you watch these things, they will haunt you uh, not quite the way some of the reality shows are haunting me. I think the worst this week is the mud pies in Haiti, trying to feed your family from mud. And uh, what was it? They make these mud pies out of margarine and salt and mud. It's like Ola in the Good Earth. Um, story about the Chinese famine by Pearl S. Buck, you know, when Ola, the good wife, the peasant wife, is stirring a big pot on the stove and the neighbors come banging in. 
asking what it is she's cooking, and she says, I cook, I cook the earth. I'm telling you, um, I do see, seem to hang on these. I, I guess I prefer, I prefer the movies, people. Life is too hard. I remember seeing Gone with the Wind when I was not much more than 10 years old, and that was the first time the scene with the soldier in the hospital in Atlanta. Scarlett O'Hara and Melanie are there nursing, and we see the the soldier brought in from the Civil War, and he's screaming, they're going to cut his leg off. I remember running, running out of the theater down in La Jolla, 10 years old. Scared me to death, but I did understand about that time why my father, uh, who was born in 1902, right, yes, 1902, why medicine was the most heroic work for his age that time, uh, the age before antibiotics, which didn't come along until World War II. Anyway, uh, yes, old age and death. I'm afraid no matter how advanced we get, we're not going to get rid of it. Uh, It does seem to me that it should be softer by now, but uh, after listening this morning to the three-hour show on what's happening to our veterans from the current war, it doesn't look like Time has made very many improvements in things. Uh, Veterans, war veterans. I was thinking, yes, um, Abigail Adams died of typhoid fever at the age of 70. John lived on to the age of 90. I did really enjoy the bits in the series where John Adams becomes a kind of happy sage in his great old age. Uh, He's seeing the world in a wild flower. He is out in the field with his son, saying that he can't help going on celebrating life. And we see him on his deathbed, and Jefferson, of course, the famous bit where both men die on the same day, 4th of July, 1826, Fifteen, let's see, fifteen, no, fifty, fifty years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the famous line, uh, John Adams' last words were, Jefferson survives, and of course, Tom Jefferson had died earlier that day, uh, so John Adams got to win the last battle, uh, I like the two Sallies. There is a Sally at each deathbed. The Sally at the deathbed of John Adams is the wife of his uh, renegade son, Charles, the one who died of booze and uh, mental illness, apparently. Uh, the other Sally is, of course, Sally Hemmons, who is just just mentioned, just Uh, referred to a couple times um, in this series. After all, it is about John Adams. Uh, I didn't think that they would take the time. Well, the Sally Hemings episode and the business of the atheism of both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, their uh, 
lack of <laughs> evangelical fervor. Right? They were they were called deists, I believe. Uh, Sally Hemings was the mother of six of Thomas Jefferson's children. Uh, she was a technically a concubine. Uh, you couldn't marry your slaves in Virginia. Uh, couldn't even free them uh, without making them leave the state. Anyway, Sally Hemings would have been about 50 when Thomas Jefferson died, and she hung around and took care of his grave till she was 63 when she too died. Uh, she lived with her two two youngest sons uh, on a cottage not too far from Jefferson's grave. Sounds like a love match to me. Uh, anyway, uh, I want to check out I want to check out the um, uh, the Beatrix Potter book, as I said, for next week for the marathon. And I'm also going to use Benazir Bhutto's um, new book uh, that was written just before she died, a biography. Uh, and let me see here. Beatrix Potter. I have... An earlier biography called The Story of the Creator of Peter Rabbit by Elizabeth Buchan, B-U-C-H-A-N. This is a book that's put out by the same people that published the Peter Rabbit series. Uh, <laughs> they're terrific stories. Uh, I remember buying them all in an effort to cheer myself up uh, a few years ago. But I'm afraid that this generation of children is not sold on Beatrix Potter. There was a movie with Renee Zellweger, which <laughs> tried to romanticize Beatrix Potter. I don't think that you can do that. Uh, she did lose her first love. He was one of the uh, editor-publishers of Peter Rabbit, and he died suddenly of... Uh, I thought he died of that terrible Spanish flu, but apparently it was, let's see, it's referred to as a blood illness. Apparently he had leukemia. She married in her 40s at about, let's see, 1913. Beatrix Potter became a farmer. Yes, she and it's like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. She believed that the urban life was uh, bad news, although she enjoyed London. She enjoyed London. London was exciting at her day, all kinds of wild things going on in London. And she took all her animals up to London with her. Uh, let's see. Uh, the thing is, let's see, I have a list here of all the places she stayed. She bought more than 40 farms and gave them to the uh, uh, National Trust so that now there is what we would call state parks or public um, lands. Uh, more than 4,000 acres, which is an awful lot if you're in the UK, in the United Kingdom. A lot of places are seaside resorts. Uh, this was a woman who was the original, one of the original conservationists. Uh, a lot of people thought that she had died. Uh, she didn't die until 1943 into World War II. 
and she seems to have been one of those citizens that just kept going. Uh, I'm looking at these wonderful pictures of her wonderful books. Uh, Jefferson, yes, Jefferson said that once we left the land, we would be in deep trouble. Beatrix Potter once told an astonished relationship that her stories would be as immortal as those of Hans Christian Andersen. Tell me about it. <laughs> My absolute most favorite cheer-me-up story by Beatrix Potter is Jemima Puddleduck. Jemima Puddleduck is the most incredible um, double-edged story. Uh, they all have kind of ironic tongue-in-cheek um, uh, what is that, tones to them. But in Jemima Puddleduck, you see this neurasthenic duck who is unable to take care of her brood. Yes, she has, has to have surrogate mothers because her nerves are shot, you know. And she's always having to have other people take care of her. She's completely bamboozled by the other animals, the foxes and things. And if it weren't for some very smart uh, dogs... She would have lost her eggs, yes. Anyway, um, let's see. I'm looking here at this little tiny short biography. Beatrix, of course, was born into an age when it was impossible for women to get into the sciences. Uh, she did try, and her drawings started out as very scientific. Uh, there are many of them. She's been really rediscovered by this new biographer. Uh, and, of course, what she did was, when she was unwelcome in the scientific community, uh, she turned to these uh, fictional stories. Uh, she had the usual god-awful Victorian ailments. Let's see. Her diary says that uh, things were very black. When she was young, she was shy and awkward and miserable, and she had rheumatic fever. And uh, eventually, of course, a weak heart. Very common in those days. Um, it's amazing that she lived to be so old and that she was such such a industrious farmer. Uh, she had to publish the books herself at first, but the minute the tale of Peter Rabbit was published, it became wildly popular and made her rich. And in America, they not only thought she was a brilliant illustrator, they actually understood that she was a great writer. <laughs> My second most favorite story is uh, the tale of two bad mice. It's a lesson in behavior. Uh, uh, the mouse Hunkamonka uh, there's a description here of its actual death. Nearly broke her heart. Yes, the actual Hunkamonka did die. I'm looking at the picture of Beatrix Potter uh, on her wedding day. She looks like members of my family. Yes, definitely, definitely. She marries this nice, stuffy farmer. And then it shows her with all her sheep dogs and discusses her married life. Uh, the little bunnies, the mice are the best, I guess. My favorite are the mice. And there are all these descriptions of people. Uh, she once wrote, Thank God I have the seeing eye, wrote Beatrix. 
As I lie in bed, I can walk step by step on the fells and on the rough lands, and I can see every stone and flower and patch of bog and cotton grass where my old legs will never take me again. She sounds just like John Adams out in his fields, yes. Back to nature, folks. It's April. We've got to get out there. Back to the seashore. I'll be on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. This has been Jennifer Stone. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of Celebrate the healing power of art by attending the Art of Transformation Gallery Party. It's at Studio 333 in Sausalito on Saturday, April 26th at 6 p.m. The exhibition features the work of abused and neglected children receiving treatment from Edgewood Center for Children and Families, Lincoln Child Center, Sand Paths Academy, Seneca Center, and Sunny Hill Services. $20 admission benefits participating charities. For more information, call 415-682-3201 or go to studio333.info.